All right, take your Bibles and turn over to Luke 2. Yes, Luke 2. I thought it interesting for us to uh, take a second and just marvel at the glory of our God as we approach this return of Christ in Revelation 19. I thought it would be uh, good for us to reflect back first before we did that on the first coming of Christ and just see the amazing difference. <laughs> They're startling. I don't have to do a whole bunch of uh, commentary on these verses uh, but I think it would be appropriate for us to look at two comings of Christ that have happened so far already and they kind of set the stage for us tonight uh, in our passage. So look at Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 4. Joseph also went up from the went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him, them, in an inn. <laughs> I'm just, I've been studying Revelation 19 for a while now and just thinking on the contrast here is staggering. <laughs> the first time he comes, he is not, he's laid in a feeding trough. The first time he comes, there's no room for them in the inn. The first time he comes, he comes in relatively obscurity. You know, people didn't even know him. Very, very few knew and were ready for him. We know from reading the rest of Luke, and, and finding out. Look over at Matthew 21. Here's another arrival of Christ into, the, uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, <laughs> I'm fairly sure that the disciples were confident that this was the beginning of the kingdom. <laughs> and I'm sure they probably thought, and okay, here he is. He's coming. He's riding up into, into Jerusalem, and he's going to set things right. And even some of the scripture might have even pointed to it in a, a, to a degree. Look at it. In verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, he's talking about getting the colt. Jesus sends them. You shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And they took this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. The foal of a breast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread the coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those followed, who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Please save to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Again, a coming, and he is relatively obscure. Now, there were some people in the road looking for him and going, Yay, he's here, he's here. But he gets into the city, and the crowds don't go 
This is the one. Nobody falls down. Not everybody starts worshiping him. By the end of this week, what happens to him? He's dead. He's killed. And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Just think of the contrast. Look over at Revelation 19. As you make your way there, to give you a, a little bit of a reintroduction to the book, we'll simplify it and go over it real quick. Introduction is found in verses 1 to 8. The things which you have or you see, you have seen. I don't know why that says that. The things which you have seen is found in verses 9 to 20. Jesus' appearance to John on the Isle of Patmos. Then the things that which are are found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 22, that's the seven churches. That's the things that were presently happening at the time of John's writing. And then finally, the things which will take place after this are found in verses 4, 1 to 22, 5. There's the worship in heaven found in verses in chapter 4 and 5. The tribulation, which starts in chapter 6 and goes down through chapter 18, comes to an, a halt here at the end of or at the beginning of Revelation 19, the return of the king is found in 19.1 to 21. And we saw on Wednesday night the rejoicing over the fall of Babylon, which is found in verses 1 to 10. Tonight we'll cover, Lord willing, the return of the king of kings and the great supper of God, which we'll talk briefly about that tonight. Uh, this is not a supper you want to be invited to. Uh, matter of fact, you don't want to be in this supper. I hope and pray that none of you will be in this supper. I hope you'll just be observing it from the outside and on white horses with white robes. Then finally we see the millennium is in 20 verses 1 to 10, the great white throne judgment in chapters 20 verses 11 to 15, the eternal state in 21, 1 to 22, 5, and then there's an epilogue at the end. That's basically how the book outlines and remember, we get the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place at the end of chapter 1, where Jesus gives an outline of the book to John. To review just a little bit more, remember we saw the worship over the return or the uh, fall of Babylon found in chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. We saw there's four stanzas. The first one is a hallelujah in verses 1 to 2, and it's a... A worship of God for providing salvation and showing his power. Then the second worship is in verse 3. It talks about the extent of God's judgment and how it's far beyond our comprehension. And then the third stanza of worship, and the third hallelujah, There's a, they, the uh, powerful beings fall down and worship him who sits on the throne. And then their worship is in total awe and wonder and they call for the fourth stanza of worship in verses six and eight, six through eight. That's where the great multitude, most likely us included in that, a great loud sound, praise Yahweh, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, is what we say. And the reason for this is that the bride has made herself ready, and we see in the verse after that, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The marriage supper for the marriage supper of the Lamb. As I stated on Wednesday, there is a dual picture going on here. There's the marriage and the kingship. 
The idea of a bride and a groom and a king and his kingdom. Both of these scenes are going on parallel right at the return of Christ and at the end of the, the, the demise of Babylon. The scene now becomes very interactive. John begins to talk. And look at verse 9. Then he said to me, and we had some discussion about who the he was. It's either an angel or one of the 24 elders or one of the angels, which could be one of the 24 elders. Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, there are true, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant. I'm a slave of your, of yours and your brethren uh, who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, most likely this is one of the elders or the angels. And it's a, be- a beatitude here, a promise of blessing or favor from God for those who are involved in this wedding union, the union of Christ and his bride. We talked about who the bride was on Wednesday night and how I believe the bride includes all believers, all believers up to this point. And it's a growing bride. In other words, it's not one bride. It's the bride of all believers. And it's not at one wedding day. It's a wedding period. It's a wedding time. And you could make an argument that the whole millennium is a part of the marriage feast. It's the whole time, just like the kingdom is not just one day. It's a whole time. It's a period of time. And he fell at the messenger's feet. John does, in effect, overwhelmed by what he hears. But the angel says, stop. I'm a fellow slave. I'm one, I'm one who is holding the testimony of Jesus like you, John. Chapter 1, verse 19, he had held to the testimony of Jesus in the same way this elder, which, by the way, I think lends a little bit more, again, to the idea that the elder is a person and, and, and along with that. Because the testimony is about Jesus and his work, the Spirit of God is the one that gives this message. In other words, John, stop worshiping me. I'm just an inspired messenger of God who is working to reveal the glories of Jesus. Worship God, not me. I'm just sharing the glory of Christ by the Spirit of God. And this brings us to this great return of the king. The Old Testament gives us and pictures this king coming one day as a man of war. This is why I'm fairly sure when Peter heard the phrase, pick up two swords, y'all grab some swords. He's thinking, oh, there's two swords, okay. And when they came to arrest him, he's thinking, okay, it's time to fight. You know, okay, let's take it. I can take it. Because throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, there's this reference to a man of war, a king that's coming to rule and reign and bring judgment. Look at Isaiah 13, 4. You'll see him all the way through here. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. As opposed to last time he rode down on a colt. He says, oh, here's some tool, uh, swords. Now, what was his point there? Most likely his point, and, and this is debated, but the idea is that things are going to be tough for you. You're going to have to provide for your own hand, not get ready for war. Here we go. We're going to battle everybody. And the disciples just didn't grasp it. They're thinking, I'm the army. I'm part of the army. 
Second, Isaiah 31, 4. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hills. Over and over, Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout, yes. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now, you got to admit, most of us don't hear this kind of Jesus preach, do we? Think about that. But this is all the way through the Bible. How many times have you heard a sermon, the man of war, Jesus, the raging one, he's aroused, the fierce wrath of God, as we will see today. Then there's Zechariah 14, 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And I think it's significant looking at this Joel passage. So you take your Bible, turn over there real quick, if you don't, unless you want to read it on screen. That's fine. It's a little smaller. So Joel 3, 1. You need to look at this. This is who Jesus is. He is not our, we, ha, we put him in a box. He's just in the manger. Or, oh, he's just on the cross. No. He's not on the cult. He's not on the cross anymore. And he's not in the manger anymore. Next time this world sees him, he will be like this. For behold, in those days and at the time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, hmm. Hmm. whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head." Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters to the hand of your sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans. To a distant nation. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshare into swords. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Come, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark 
and the stars lose their brightness. By the way, has that ever happened? No, that's never happened. The Lord roars from Lion or from Zion, Lion, <laughs> and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, living in Zion. Hmm. That's the time, isn't it? My holy mountain, so Jerusalem, will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. What is this? This is screaming the return of Christ. It's something like it's never happened before. And you can see why the disciples were thinking what? A cult? I wonder if they were thinking on a cult. Swords, where are they? I'll take them. No. Next time. This time. Revelation 19. This is who he is. This starts another major vision in the Revelation. Let's look. Revelation 19, 11. The returning king. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Notice he is on a white horse. Probably a symbol for the king's final victory. When Christ actively exerts the authority that is rightfully his. At Jesus' first coming, he rode in on a donkey, humble and gentle, all to die on a cross to provide a salvation for us who believe. However, next time when he comes, he will ride in on a white horse and he will clean house. And he will be a man of war, a warrior king. I think it's interesting. We've had. I was having a discussion with Neil a little bit. Is this a literal white horse or is it a uh, donkey? Uh, you know, you had the donkey before, but a white horse is it literally? Is he literally going to come in on a white horse, or is this just symbolic language and it's not? The problem is, is if we say that it's just symbolic language, what do we do with the cult passage in the Old Testament that was literal? Okay, oh, well, it was, it was literal there, but it's not literal here. I could actually see him coming in on a white horse. Why? Because I think we need to keep it at its literal. I know some people are saying, wait, a white horse? White horses usually don't fly. God created horses. Come on. It's nothing for God. He can do anything if he wants. If he wanted a big white horse, it could be a big white horse. If he wanted a small white horse, it could be a small white horse. But he can do it, right? He did a cult. He provided it in a way that the men went what? Just go to that guy over there and tell him your master needs the cult. Guess what? Okay, he got it. He can provide a white horse. If he provided a cult, he can provide a white horse. Is that crazy? Am I nuts here? Seems pretty literal, right? Now, does it have symbolism behind it? Probably. 
the victory of a horse, the power of a horse and a king riding in. That's what happens. He's called faithful and true. He is faithful, which means he is trustworthy. In light of the countless promises of his return, when he appears, it will be a very fitting description. Yes, he's faithful. He's trustworthy to what he said. All the promises of the Bible, he's going to keep them. He's faithful and true, which means he's reliable. Again, he can be counted on to keep his promises. How important is this message for the suffering Christian that John was writing back in the day of Revelation? It's very important. Ladies and gentlemen, don't take these things lightly. Why is this so important? It's important to know that Jesus and God ultimately keeps their promises. All the promises of the Old Testament are going to be kept. It's a promise, and it's a guarantee. He is faithful and true. And that's why he even has that name. That's good news. You know, we stand on the promises when it's appropriate for us. But we should stand on their promises even when it shakes us up a little bit, right? God is a promise-keeping God. Praise the Lord. We take the Lord's Supper until he returns, knowing that he is going to return one day. Why? Because he's faithful and true. And his actions are described as judging and waging war in righteousness. Next, The next description shows he is a king who both judges and wages war against his enemies. He has reached a just verdict for the beast and the wicked world. He does not compromise on sin. Those who do not repent of this false way, his just judgment will come. He will wage war with them. And again, how important is it to understand? How important is it to understand that Jesus is a just and righteous God? Let me ask you a question. Do you meditate on the justice and the righteousness of God when you're sinning? Absolutely not. It's the least likely thing for you to meditate on. Maybe we should meditate on this thought a little bit more. Would you not agree? I mean, when we're in the midst of a horrible circumstance, and if for no other reason we may know that we are declared right by justification, by trusting in Christ, right? But what about those people that we have a witness to that look at us and go, whoa, They ignore the righteousness of God, and they see that we don't take the righteousness of God seriously. Do you understand that? Did you hear what I said? If we sin, go on sinning frivolously, then we take verses like this where we know that the righteous judge is coming, and we say to those that are watching us, you know what, I really don't believe it. Because if I really believed it, I would be fearful for you, and I wouldn't be acting like this. This is so important. He is a just judge and he is coming. And that should bring a reverential fear, a real fear to our hearts. He's reached a just verdict in the future and it will happen. And it is literal. Trust me. And notice we see his appearance reveals who he is. It says his eyes are like flame of fire. He's that warrior king which does not miss anything. Here, probably the idea indicates that nothing escapes his notice. 
Nothing escapes the king's notice. He sees all fraud. He sees all wickedness. He sees all, all everybody that treats the saints wrong. He sees everything. And he can rule justly because he sees everything. Remember, this attitude is what caused... Look what happens to John. Go back over. I think it's the same person. It's Jesus. He saw a glimpse of it back in chapter 1. Look. Chapter 1 again. Verse 17. After seeing his eyes were like a flame of fire in verse 14, chapter 1, look what he happens in verse 17. Oh, we missed this so much. Listen closely, please. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is John. This is the same John that laid his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the one that had an intimate relationship with him. He knew him as the one loved by Jesus. That's how he called himself in John's gospel. But what does he do? How does he respond to the glorified Christ? The same one that probably is the same picture that's found in 19. How does he respond? He fell on his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me. Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have keys of death and Hades. What's the point? John is overwhelmed with the glory of God. He sees his holiness and has a reverential fear. Let me ask you a question. Why don't we remember this? Why isn't this our life? I mean, right now I'm talking about some of the greatest glories, talking about holy Christ when he returns and him being a just judge. Why is it that I know that some of you are fighting just like I do sometimes, just to keep my focus? Why is it? We are weak, aren't we? We're just so prone to not see and understand and meditate on the glories of God. We take Christ so, it's just, a, oh, he's Christ, no big deal. Oh, this is that sermon I've heard before. So important, ladies and gentlemen. Eyes like a flame of fire. Nothing escapes his notice. Forgive me, Lord. How many times have I just ignored Ignored that you see everything. Notice, second, he is a king over all. He's a king over all. The many diadems points to his rule over everything. A great king has crowned the jewels, has jewels for every, from everywhere, and then he's beyond all comprehension. He, is, he has an unknown name. Probably it points to the incomprehensibility of Jesus the King. They can't even understand him. He is beyond understanding. He is so far beyond us that he has a name, and that name is perfectly symbolized by his incomprehensibility. We can't know him completely. He's beyond us. Name, remember, points to who he is as a person. And it's an unknown name and pointing to he's an unknown person. You really don't grasp him. You don't get how big Jesus is. We don't get how big he is. One day, one day, this incomprehensible God is going to return. 
and he's beyond our comprehension. As Isaiah 55, 8 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my, my ways are not your ways. He is incomprehensible, and yet he's a vicious, vicious warrior king, a vicious warrior king. I think the backdrop for this is from Isaiah 63, 1 to 3. Look at it. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozar? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the ones who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. It's very important here. He is a vicious warrior king. Oh, can you imagine? Seeker Sensitive Church. You ready? The, the title of our message today is... We're going to see the vicious warrior king. <laughs> Can you imagine what they would think? The vicious warrior king. Boy, that wouldn't go over real well, wouldn't it? But this is who he is. This is the backdrop. This is who Christ is. He is so much. He, you know, guys, I think that if all of us got just a little glimpse of who he really was, we'd probably have a hard time picking ourselves up off the floor. You know, you've heard the I Can Only Imagine song, whether you stand or will I be on my face. I'm almost 99% sure you're going to be on your face, okay? I promise you, if you see the vicious king, the vicious warrior king, you're going to be like John. I'm a dead man. Woe is me. I'm undone. Get out of my sight. I can't even be in your presence. We don't think of Jesus like that. He's the baby in the feeding trough or the man on the cross. That's all we see. That's what we think. We don't meditate, do we? Do we meditate? Warrior, vicious king. No. Even the people that interpret these passages, when they come to the place, when we'll see it in a second, about his garments being stained, by the red, the blood, it seems if Isaiah 6 is, uh, 63 is in view, it's talking about what? All the people he's killed. The blood on his garments is from, it's pointing to all the people that he has viciously shown his wrath to over the years. He has wiped out nations. He is a powerful, vicious warrior king. You heard the boys got to see a little bit of Jurassic Park the other night, and they were feared out of their minds. And you have to ask the question, do we have this kind of fear of God? Oh, that my children would understand the vicious warrior king. Oh, that I would demonstrate that in my house. But we don't, do we? Is that our pattern in our house? No. Because 
The pattern might come when we do a spanking occasionally. But the reality is this. When we show the light on our own hearts, I know they look at us and go, you don't look at him as a vicious warrior king. If you did, your life might be a little bit better. You'd be a little bit more holy, mommy and daddy. You don't view him that way. I know I need to change. I need to improve on this. How about you? I need a better glimpse of the warrior king. Please change me, God. I'm afraid we're too complacent here, aren't we? We're just lulled to sleep in America. It's called the word of God, notice. It's interesting. I love this. You see... The word of God, he's called the word of God. Remember, John called him that in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1 of John, right? Remember? Talking about the creation, he's called the word of God. But then over in John chapter 1, verse 14, when it's describing his gracious incarnation, full of grace and truth, right? Remember? He's called the word of God that became flesh. Here, he's called the word of God again. And what is this? Oh, this is a great reminder, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I'm trying to show you the vividness of his glory and his glory and his power and his viciousness and his warrior. That's what the passage is talking about. But he is the word, the revelation of God, and he's not just Revelation 19. He's all of those. He's the creator God, and he's also the gracious and kind God that became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the revelation of God. Think about that. He shows off God. He showed him off in creation. He showed him off when he was incarnate. And he shows him off when he returns. He is the word of God. And this God is gracious and just. As Exodus 34 and 6, 6 and 7 states. Here's the returning army. One verse on us. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen. Remember, we talked about this in the previous verses, which are the uh, righteous acts of the saint because God is working within us. White and clean, we're following him on white horses. Oh, boy, we get white horses too. Interesting thought. Are they literal? Why not? What if you don't know how to ride a horse? You'll know then. (laughs) It should be noted That the glory of the king is often demonstrated by the glory of his army. Listen, do you understand what I'm saying? What do the Russians, what did the Russians do at the height of the Cold War? They had days where they would bring out their whole army and display everything. Remember? Remember them? And even Saddam Hussein brought out, remember? Having all those pictures? When we were in Myanmar, the the army did it. The same thing on television. Over and over. Just showing their army. That is our glory. That is something to be feared. Well, this army is a staggering multitude of people. And it's very interesting to me that we don't have any blood on our linens. <laughs> we don't have to fight any. Not any. None. He does it. He's the warrior king. We just follow behind in victory. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great news? In other words, look, his glory is shown by that his army never even gets touched. 
Very interesting here. We know this as Jesus' bride, the army, the clothed in fine linen. We see the reigning king in the verses 15 to 16. From, the, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Why? So that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. You thought it was going to get better. It just got worse. Harder and harder and harder and more intense. The reigning king is pictured here. Jesus is pictured as now the ferocious warrior. His power is what? In what he says. I love that, that line from Martin Luther's song, right? Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. Great line, beautiful line. And one little word will fell him. Talking of Satan and the doom of all. Because, see, Jesus, all he does is speaks and everybody's dead. It's nothing for God. His power is in his mouth. It's in what he says. His word is powerful. And it's also that he may strike down. This is graphic language. We see this coming also in the call of birds to come to eat. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is not language that you would preach in the secret sensitive church at all. Right? I mean, think about it. Today, we're going to talk about a great supper. What does the supper consist of? Human flesh. Everybody that Jesus is going to speak and they die, there's going to have to be a lot of birds to eat the flesh. Millions. Boy, that one would go over real well, wouldn't it? <laughs> she said, yeah. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> But this is who he is. This is who he is. This is who our king is. He strikes down the nations. He rules them with a rod of iron. This is such a contrast to the gentleness of his first coming. Isn't it? I mean, can't you? It's almost like paradoxical. You're sitting here feeding draw, wine press, strike them down with the sword, blood on his garments from all those that he's killed, feeding trough. Colt, wow, God is big. He's so much bigger than we can comprehend, isn't he? He's more powerful, more holy, more big, more awesome. So much bigger than we can comprehend. We should just worship him all the time, right? Obedience shouldn't be an option. It should be a privilege. Oh, man, he's not. Yes, he saved me from his wrath. He treads the wine press. This is graphic, graphic language. The people would know a wine press taking and crushing grapes, pushing them, beating them, doing whatever it takes to get the juice out of it. What's the point? This is supposed to make, cause fear in the hearts of the reader. By the way, if you're in Laodicean church, you should be shocked at this point, shouldn't you? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What's the point? There's, he's not anywhere in that church. There's a need for revival, a repentance, because the king is the one that's coming back one day. Revelation 19. You know, I made joke a little bit of the seeker-sensitive church. 
you know, this is the message that needs to be preached there, isn't it? This is the very message that needs to be proclaimed. And this is the message that you should be talking to your people about, your neighbors. Because Jesus, in many circles, is what? Just a loving, gentle. We have no problem putting a manger scene out in front of our house. But when it comes to a riding in on a white horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth, that one wouldn't go over real well. With blood all over his cloak? Maybe we dress up for that for Christmas or for Halloween. We put on some blood on the garments. I'm part of his army. I'm one of his troops. I don't know. It just It's totally different than the way the world thinks, isn't it? Opposite. The fierce wrath of God. Again, double imagery brings the fierceness of God's wrath. By the way, I'm not giving a condolence there. For Halloween, do what your conscience says. The important point here is that the wrath of God does some wicked, rough. Wicked's not the word. That would be a change in vocabulary. Ferocious, vicious things. And again, there it is again. That word, that phrase, that title, the Almighty. We talked about it previously on Wednesday nights. Mentioned several times in the Revelation. Why? Because only the all-powerful God can accomplish this. He's the one that does it. Visible on the horse is his thigh. If you're riding a horse, by the way, why you ask, well, why is his name on his thigh? King of kings and Lord of lords. Why would it be on his thigh? Well, if you're riding a horse, what's visible? he is the king of kings and lord of lords and everybody needs to know it whereas before he comes in on the donkey and they say who is this next time he rides in on the horse and everybody knows king of kings lord of lords that's it evil's gone he is foremost of all kings and lord now I thought it appropriate for, even though I'm not going to do a full exposition of it, <laughs> let's see what he does when he gets there. <laughs> I don't really even have to do the exposition. I will, though. Don't tr- trust me. I'm not gonna get away. You're not going to get away with it. Wednesday night, I'll go back to it. But look at verse 17. I want to read this down through the end of the chapter so you can get a picture of what it's like when he gets here. Then I saw an angel standing in the, in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of all those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, and slave, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had, the, had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two 
were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on his horse, on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Look at verse chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And these things he must be, after these things he must be released for a short time. You get an idea here of just what we have coming forward on Wednesday nights. But ladies and gentlemen, too many times we lighten up these passages. And the Christ will return. The King will come. And the next time he comes, it, it reminds me a lot of what Ryan's been going through with Habakkuk, with the woe judgments. It's the same concept of being properly, having a proper view of who God is. It is so important for us to understand. You know, evangelism's not a problem if we're meditating on Revelation 19, 11 to 7, uh, 16, <laughs> or even the eating of the flesh, <laughs> right? Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. And Lord, we don't deserve it. We deserve to face the wrath of the Lamb. Yet you are so gracious. The lamb became slain, became a man and was slain for us. Thank you, Father. Again, this wrath that we deserve laid on your son is far beyond our comprehension. Oh, God, please help us never to take it lightly. And I am so sorry, Father. I petition for my brothers and sisters and myself, too. Please forgive us for the numerous times that we've taken your your holiness lightly. Help us, God, to have a proper view of you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your holiness. And we thank you that one day we will return with your son. We pray this in Christ's name.